It might be getting stale. Okay, let's make it fresh. Hello and welcome to Fresh Aesthetic, the show where we discuss topics like creativity, popular culture, self-acceptance, and more. My name is Stephen, and I'm joined by my co-host Matt. Hi Matt, and welcome to the show everyone. Let's hit it. So this week we're talking about a topic called embodiment, um, and the title of the episode is Your Body is Not an Uber for Your Brain. Good title. It's actually based on... Well, this whole uh, episode and learning about this topic for me has been based on Hilary McBride's work. Um, and I just got a new book, The Wisdom of Your Body. She talks about, um, she actually uses the word taxi, but she talks about your body not being a taxi for your brain. Um, and yeah, I found a lot of um, like help in her work over the years. Her work has really given me a lot of tools in my life and helped me to understand a lot of things um, to do with embodiment, but also other things like emotional regulation as well. So yeah, heavily influenced by her and excited to share some words from her new book as well, and also to dive into this topic this week. Absolutely. I think it's a relevant topic. I think uh, I was just looking up the word disembodiment and comparing that to the term embodiment uh, that we're talking about, which really is the interconnectedness of all things. A little quote there from Dirk Gently, uh, Holistic Detective Agency, but <laughs> the, the interconnectedness of the soul, the body, and the spirit. And disembodiment, uh, if, if I go to the dictionary as to what it means, um, it says a soul, spirit, or consciousness that has been disembodied or which otherwise lacks physical form. And so really... It's, again, defining this idea of the, the, the body being separated from the soul or the spirit. And I guess the, the question is, can that really happen? Uh, um, to what degree does that happen in the sense that we are so connected to our bodies in this life? It's something that we, we wake up, we have emotions, and they're in our brain, but they're also affecting how we feel, they're affecting how our body reacts, and maybe it's time to start paying attention to that. So I think it's a great topic um, to to explore, especially at a time when a lot of people are feeling emotions of anxiety and stress and, and other things. And I was just reading a study where it talks about, in New Zealand specifically, that over the period of uh, the last, well, since the outbreak a year and a half ago, really, that stress and um, anxiety has risen in the population, which is obvious. Uh, but uh, generally amongst younger people, it's grown greater. Those who smoke and drink alcohol uh, were associated with increased anxiety. However, pet ownership, exercise, and getting out there and doing stuff really helped reduce anxiety but we did better than the UK which uh, the UK had a big wave of depression and, and really there could be other reasons many reasons for that but the conclusion was basically that a lot of people are feeling globally anxiety and depression and maybe it's time that we started paying attention to our bodies more and started checking the signals and seeing what's going on so so what is that for you what does it mean for you this term of embodiment the wisdom of your body 
being present in your body, how does that affect and how does that work on, on the level? How are things connected? Excellent lead into to this and um, thanks for those questions as well. Really good questions there. It means a lot of things to me. I am a beginner in the topic and in the tool. Um, I only just found out about it very recently, but it instantly resonated with me. And I, I, I usually look for tools that, that resonate with my experience and I know are going to be helpful for progressing forward. And forward from, I guess, that anxiety you're talking about, because it has been a huge uh, thing in my life and, well, mo- in recent years anyway, probably uh, starting in the last five years or so. Um, so I've always been on the, the lookout for tools. And the very first one I found was the Enneagram, which was, we'll do an episode on that another time. This one does stick out as well as being really important. Uh, what I might do to, to kick off is just read an excerpt from Hilary McBride's new book. And I think it should really lead into the topic quite nicely as well. Embodiment comes with a particular kind of ache, liberation, or both, depending on whether the person experienced body violation, illness, or pain. To say that you are your body is not to further over-identify each of us with the ways our bodies have been made objects, but rather to remind us that our personhood is inextricable from our physicality. This is meant to rehumanize us all and to distance us from the paradigms that separated us from our bodies in the first place, as if any of us could ever transcend our bodies. The body is where life happens, both the beautiful and the painful, our individuality and our relationships, the now and the past, but many of us have forgotten ourselves as bodies. We did so in order to survive the pain or to be compliant, but in the process we left behind so much of the beautiful. We cannot leave one without leaving the other. At best, most of us have a conflicted relationship with our bodies, forgetting there is more to being a body than our appearance or tolerating that appearance. At worst, the stories we tell ourselves are ones of shame, hatred, frustration, confusion, or indifference. But there is another way. And then that goes on and on, obviously, as as it's a book. But um, I think one thing that really resonates with me is that word shame. And when we do get into our Enneagram episode, my number is part of the shame triad. So the the emotion most resonant with um, three of the numbers on the Enneagram, one of those being the number that I consider that um, tells the narrative or is the narrative I've latched onto in my life. And the, the, the resonant emotion of those three numbers is shame. So shame has played a huge role in my story, right? It shaped me in a number of ways and been something that I just thought was always going to be there and you kind of almost get used to it being there, which is sad. Um, but I guess one one way I could talk about how or where disembodiment maybe started for me is some stories in childhood of um, just just shame stories, really. And yeah, there's there's a number of them. One of them that comes to mind is needing to wear glasses, right? So your your eyesight's not. I'm short sighted, so I can't. I couldn't see the board at school, and 
back when I was growing up, it wasn't actually cool yet to wear glasses. It was. I don't think it ever is in that age group, is n- it? It's well, mate, a- I don't know. This day and age, I feel like it. It's just. It just, is. It just it, happens. It, it, yeah. it just happens. Yeah, it's not so much of a, a thing that people point at and go, "Oh, you." Because yeah, gla- glasses used to be, uh, and this is the other thing, glasses used to be quite expensive. So to have a pair of glasses, you, when your mum bought your glasses, you wore them, you know, because yeah. they'd spend a lot of money. And some kids, I remember in school, some kids uh, couldn't afford glasses. Um, and so there was a stigma definitely attached to them. I can vouch for that. Mm. Yeah, f- for sure. And I was very much ashamed of that um, because like like people, an optometrist would come to our school and you'd be sent out from class to go and get your eyes tested at school. And I remember just knowing that I would fail the eyesight test and then later on fail my driver's license eye test. And it was extremely embarrassing like it just seems so funny to me now, but at the time it was, it was a huge deal to me. So I remember coming back from this test at school and going back into class and then your mates would be like, oh, what happened? Did you pass? And I don't remember how I answered that question, but I do remember intense shame around it um, because I would, I would even like hide my glasses in my bag and then quickly grab them before the test and then go and take them in and then hide them again when I came out. Um, so the fact that I was just so ashamed to even wear those in front of people, it's, it's mind blowing, but it's, it was a thing. Um, and then you'd, so I'd go into class and obviously wouldn't wear glasses in front of people because I was terrified of what they'd say. And then my mates would be sitting at the back of the class and they'd always like go, Oh, come sit by beside me, you know, motion for you to come and sit by them when you walked into class. And, and in my head, I'm going, I'm not going to be able to read the board. Right. Wow. And, That's and crazy. Yeah, but I were um I guess part of my personality is I I haven't been able to or I struggled to share what I need with people for fear of I don't know being rejected I guess um or being a burden or being people won't love me maybe I don't know but perhaps this is in part linked to all of these stories I have of being ashamed of my body in childhood. So I'd sit next to my mates, you know, I'd go over to them because the peer pressure was too strong. Like I'd want to sit at the front of the class, but then you get the nerd category of like, what are you doing? Um, so I'd go sit by my mates at the back and then I had to, cause this was back in the day when teachers wrote a lot of things on the board, right? They'd write out paragraphs of things that you had to write down in your book because you're going to be tested on them. And so they go to write things on the board and then they ask you questions about it as well. And so I'm having to like look out of the corner of my eye and copy off my friend's work, not copy like cheat on a test or something. I'm talking about just literally I need to see it closer and I need to read it. And you're trying to look over without getting caught by them. Um, and then also have an answer if the teacher asks you anything. So it's quite a complicated series of events there, but what it leads to is you feeling very ashamed of the fact that you can't see like everybody else can. Yeah, and that's, I think, uh, that's a perceived, eyesight is a perceived thing that most people would overlook when we're talking about body image, and I don't think we can talk about this without paying attention to you know, body image as far as weight is a huge issue for a lot of people. And I've just got some statistics here that 80% of 
uh, women in the US. It's 80% of women don't like how they look. 34% of men are dissatisfied with their body. 50% of Americans aren't happy with their current weight. 70% of normal weighted women want to be thinner. 70% of normal weighted women want to be thinner. That's insane. That's a, that's a population issue. That I mean, th- if you think of 70, 70%, when we're talking about shame in the body, we're, this is massive. We're not just isolating necessarily to weight, but we're looking at eyesight. We're looking at other disabilities. And I've never had a f- full experience with being dissatisfied with my body other than I'm quite a tall build. I think the term is uh, there's, there's different body types. And I think mine's an ectomorph, which is basically the skinniest, uh, skinniest and thinnest and lankiest. I have always struggled to put on weight and people always sort of comment like, Oh, I wish I was you. I wish I had your problem. And part of me just lets it roll off. But the other part of me is like, you have no idea what you're talking about. You're seeing your challenge and facing your battles. But there's a flip side to that. And the flip side is the body image that I carry is one that is never the stereotype male of, you know, strong, healthy, fit. I'm always going to be in that skinny, tall category, you know. And I'm, I'm sort of okay with that. But it's amazing how things affect people and we don't we don't even think about it we don't even think about all the people who are walking around in society who have grown in a sense a dissatisfaction or a disconnection with their bodies and it's affecting things throughout their life it's affecting the way they relate to their bodies it's affecting the way they relate to their emotions so i'm interested to hear from you how disembodiment has affected you talked about anxiety earlier, how this has played out in your life, moving away from being embodied, moving away from accepting your body and being part of it and listening to it. How have those early experiences of shame affected you today? Yeah, excellent question. And I'm still trying to unpack how they have and figure out like with anxiety, what my triggers are for anxiety, and also the links from embodiment to anxiety and things like that. I'll share a couple more stories just to give more of a picture, and then who knows, maybe we'll have live therapy on the stream where I figure out what's going on for me. But I've got a memory, I've got a really specific memory in my head of another moment where I've been ashamed to communicate my needs, and that's going to friends' places as a kid, Um, I've got a specific memory of being at a best friend's house and being really hungry um, in the morning and not wanting to be a burden, so not wanting to say that I'm hungry. Yeah, just it's just a crazy feeling, and I ended up just waiting till he was hungry to eat. No, wait, wait, I don't want you to go on there. This is fascinating. This is crazy. A lot of us had experiences like this, right? I remember having a similar experiences. What you're talking about here is the body communicating something and your inability to listen to your body, so to speak. And what's holding you back is the fear, as you said in when you talked about your previous story, is the shame or the rejection that might come or the fear of that, even though it might not even be real. You've convinced yourself to shut down what your body is saying 
for the need of the approval of others. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where the disembodiment comes in. And it, uh, I don't know what age it comes in, but in the book, Hillary talks about how we're all born embodied. We don't we don't we're not born disembodied she talks about the um a baby is fully embodied um and is one thing right you you're not just because when you grow up you think you're a brain and then your body is like the title a taxi or an uber to, to carry your brain around because your brain is the real person and your body is just this like way of cutting that thing around you're not born disembodied um but you grow into that through culture and like stories and ways that you encounter like the story of being at a friend's house and shutting down a, a specific embodied emotion or feeling that or a need um you just turn it off and you usually it's at a point of pain the way hillary describes it is it's at a point of pain where you disconnect from your body and you go up into your head yeah that's why becoming re-embodied or remembering or coming home to our bodies can be painful because you start to remember why you disconnected from it in the first place so for some people be like coming back to their body could feel traumatic because it was at right. the point of pain where they left in the first place so as a kid, yeah, having these, like I've got quite a few of these stories and of course the disclaimer of privilege and all that, like, but still I've got these stories of, and they're probably where I first became disembodied. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a very human thing. I just want to clarify here the difference between, uh, because I'm aware listeners are listening to this and thinking, man, you know, there's been heaps of times that, you know, I wanted to go to the toilet and I didn't want to interrupt, you know, so surely there's a, a time and a space what's the difference between saying to your body like no now's not the time and shutting it down yeah that's a good a good point and it's it's like that with emotions as well because um you you might have an emotion throughout the day like you might feel like you want to cry for example during the work day and it's not appropriate it's not appropriate to be a mess especially in a work in a professional yeah, yeah yeah exactly yeah, a professional environment and you've got a job to get on with Sometimes there is a potential reason to have to go, okay, I can't actually do that right now, but I'm not going to ignore it forever. I'm going to come back to it. So you're not suppressing forever and you're not, you're not just right. turning it off completely. You're saying you've got, you've got regulation, right? You know that either the, the place isn't safe to be able to do it or the timing is just, it's just not yeah. appropriate or it's, yeah. So that division, I guess the way that I would relate to it in my own mind is seeing uh, when your body does something and it's not appropriate, you go, look, I hear you, but but not right now. And uh, we'll come back to that. I've not, I'm not going to cast you out because of that. But what shame does is, is what you're talking about is shame is saying, no, you should not feel that. And I will not permit you to, to be like that. Um, and the way that I also perceive this is a sense of ownership over the body that in my own life, and I'm trying to think of it, I'm trying to, I, I never sort of thought of embarrassing stories before this, but I'm sure I got many times where I felt my body didn't behave the way I wanted it to, or there was, there was moments I shut myself down, but the inability to um, recognize them can also be a barrier to moving past that right so how do you go back and recognize where you shut down yeah well i mean it's the same thing with with therapy and, and any of these tools is like you're you you are actively looking back and trying to 
unravel or unwind some of these narratives and things you've picked up these strategies you've picked up in order to survive so you've got to remember that it's just a survival thing like the the reason you became disembodied is because it wasn't safe to be embodied and for me needing to wear glasses um having one leg longer than the other so needing to wear built-up shoes it wasn't I knew that if I did at school, it's just like social suicide to go to school with built-up shoes, glasses, and just all the things my body needed, yet I was too ashamed to do because I would just become an absolute laughing stock of my friends. And at that age, you don't, like, that's everything to you. But even, like, even so, still today, it would still be, yeah. Anyway, I mean, it's complicated and I'm still trying to analyze some things from my childhood and trying to figure out where you do pick up these narratives that aren't helpful, but they help you at the time. Again, they help you at the time, but later on, they start to really constrict you and really start to almost choke you. If you can imagine um, them being around your neck like a... I don't know, like a, it feels like a movie almost, like there's something around your neck choking you and it's going to eventually kill you unless you figure it out and unwind it. And by kill you, you mean you will end up disembodied. Yeah, or you'll just be so um, so focused and addicted to to coping mechanisms because you're it's it's not your your old strategies they they stop working and then so you end up piling on the let's use alcohol like you you're piling on the alcohol because it's helping to suppress it still wow see that's fascinating because now what we're talking about is things happening to us we learn how to cope in the moment and that plays out over the next 20 30 40 50 in fact sometimes a lifetime of coping mechanisms that we have not identified. The coping mechanisms aren't the sickness. The sickness is the inability to be at one with our body and ourself. As you're speaking, I was remembering something that actually almost brought up emotions in me. And it was when I was at primary school and I used to be silly, like I was, I still am. And I love being silly. I love being funny. I love making people laugh. And my son, Nathan, is exactly the same. And it's so funny seeing him at the age I was when I had a similar, ex- uh, a, a, my own experience with this when I was in the playground, went up to my friend and I was just being silly. And he said to me, just leave me alone. Why do you always have to be so silly? The tone in which he said it was very condescending or like he didn't like me. There was a rejection in that. And I've never thought about that really. I mean, obviously it's in my memory somehow. But as you're speaking, I'm thinking of the shame that came with the association of me being silly around people and how that's played out in my life has been the first impressions I make with people whenever I'm meeting people. It's like I have to take away my silly side. I have to present myself as fully capable and serious and caring because if they see my silly side... They're not going to take me seriously. Not so much that as, you know, there's a rejection there. And so I can see that how that's played out in me. And the longer I get to know someone, it's like, I'm afraid they might see that side. I'm afraid they might see that I'm silly. I'm afraid they might see that I like doing roly polies on the lounge because I feel like it. I'm afraid. And here's, here's another one that follows on from that is the way I sit is inherently the way my dad sits. 
It's a weird thing because I didn't grow up with my dad and we both sit the same. And the comments that I used to have from people of, why do you sit weird? And again, the, the condescending tone. And, you know, I still sit weird. I'm quite a lanky, flexible person. But the rejection, the fear of rejection, so I try and hide that part of me as well. When I'm sitting with people and hanging out, unless I really know them, it's like I will, I will do my best to present the mat that you want to see that I know from census data of my life that you want to see. And so I can totally relate to that as you're talking about this. I didn't come into the podcast processing this, but I certainly am now. So what are things that we can do? What are tools that we can use to reconnect ourselves when we've identified these moments? Yeah, that's that's really a really awesome story. I'm glad it brought it up for you. like Because things like this we can often think are really... Um, insignificant but honestly these things shaped us and we didn't realize at the time how much of a narrative we craft around that and how many things we bring in I mean as a kid you don't know to say oh if you don't accept me for who I am then that's your thing it's not me you just try and change because you want to fit in you've got such a desire to fit in as a child I mean as anybody really as a human you've got a desire to fit in but as a kid you don't have the tools to be able to realize that it's the other person projecting onto you more than a problem of yourself but anyway your to your question um, about what tools have we got Hillary talks about again it's a coming home to your body and remembering that you are embodied as a person it's not like you have to strive to get to this point you already are embodied um, it's a remembering and a coming home so again embodiment for me is a tool and a, and and a, I'm starting to realize how much of a good tool it is um, but I want to actually do want to give another story because I I've, I think it kind of goes off the back of your story. Um, another thing from when I was a kid was I was a very sensitive child and I still am very sensitive. Um, but when I was growing up, another thing that wasn't cool was to cry. Um, it was very, very socially unacceptable for a boy to cry in public. Um, and I all the time <laughs> would cry at school. Um, just, I don't know, I'm just very sensitive. So things happen and I feel things very deeply. And so I would feel these tears welling up in my eyes. And I know I was going to get ridiculed for it and had been in the past. And so I would go to the bathroom and try to wash my eyes. But I also remember like lifting my head up to try and not let the tears stain my face wow like i would i would have a method and a place i would go to to try and not show any sign on my face that i'd been crying that's a science bro yeah because tear stained face to me meant you're gonna have a real crappy day wow so so that would be something that i would avoid and it's just who I am being sensitive. And it's so sad to think that a child goes through this. Again, it's the, the cultural moment I grew up in. It wasn't, it wasn't okay. And this, that's why when I listened to, because I am sensitive, I cried again. But when I listened to um, this uh, Coldplay just released their new album and one of the songs off it with Jacob Collier, I think it's just the heart emoji is the name of the song. The first verse is boys, 
boys don't cry, boys keep it all inside. I try to hide it underneath, still my heart starts to beat. And, and just hearing that first line of the song, I just brings tears to my eyes because I know what they're getting at with the lyrics of the song. And it's it resonates so deeply because I, I always have found that who I am tends to go against the gender norms because when I was growing up especially, but even still today, I hear people say things like, oh, girls are the sensitive ones. It's, you know what I'm talking about? Like, um, they're the ones that are going to cry. They're the, you know, and all these traits that I was exhibiting would be what people would typically associate with being a girl. Right. More feminine sort of. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, first of all, never resonated when people would talk about alpha males. Absolutely not. Like, like I played sports a few times as a kid and enjoyed it, but was never into rugby, was never, uh, again, like you, skinny, tallish, white guy um, with limbs that were like out of proportion. Like my yeah. head was always bigger than my body, so I always looked super out of proportion, had a weird walk. Um, so like my body to me has always been a point of shame. And then another story, oh my gosh, this is turning into just a session of stories, but I think people relate most to stories, so... Um, I think these are helping people. I hope so, otherwise... No, no, it's not embarrassing. It's just who I am. I'm trying to... Yeah, yeah turn, turn the That's tables, it. man. Turn the narratives the on their head. Um, another story is, well, I grew up in, you know, evangelical Christian Christianity, and at the time, um, purity culture was at its peak. It was like in its heyday. So we've got authors like Joshua Harris, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, was just a number one bestseller and was starting... You know when ideas first come in and they just make the absolute rounds on... The I mean, fad. Yeah, yeah, they're just in vogue at the time. And, and this happens in secular worlds as well. But in Christianity at the time, what was making the rounds was uh, purity culture and in particular Joshua Harris's I Kiss Dating Goodbye... So that was me in my formative years was um, that book in particular, but also the way it was affecting leaders in my life. Like I remember a number of people saying that they weren't even going to hold hands until they were married or even like definitely not kiss until they're married. Some of them were going as far as not even holding hands. And like it just kind of in my formative years, it was a very heavy narrative that like you're also on top of everything else of my body that I thought was quite shameful and embarrassing. On top of that, your sexuality is shameful and embarrassing. And it's like, as a human, you have all these urges, like teenage years, eh? yeah, teenage years in particular, like you're just starting to feel all of the hormones raging and you're starting to experience yourself as a sexual being, as well as just a human being. On top of everything else, you're feeling like that's also shameful and that's also bad. So it's 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 almost like the perfect storm of uh, shame about everything in relationship to your body. And then, so of course, like I, I'm not surprised in the slightest that I disconnected from my body and became disembodied. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so the to-, to your question, the tools of getting back to it. Well, this is something that I've only just discovered and... As soon as I discovered it, I was like instantly it resonated with me because 
I just knew. You just know, right, when a, when something comes up. It matches the story that you had. Yeah, we've talked about this before, but the ability to identify something is half the battle, right? The other thing, as you were talking, that came, I, I mean, sexuality is a huge one, especially amongst um, conservative Christian circles, is it's... I just want to also say Joshua Harris, the guy who wrote that book, actually came out years later and was like, oops. <laughs> I think that's important to acknowledge that, not for the sake of his reputation, but for the sake of recognizing that even the most devoted person to that narrative found it didn't work. Sexuality, and even in biblical terms, Paul talks about it, and he's like, if the sexual urge is great, go and get married, go for it. He's not like, shut that thing down. That's the devil. That's bad in you. And I think that sometimes we can, as a society, especially amongst conservative circles, in a bid to grow self-control in a person, we think, well, if we shut that thing down, then there's, they don't have to learn self-control in that area. And I think that's important that we reverse that in the, the coming generation and say, well, look, it's okay to um, have sexual attraction. It's okay to be a sexual entity in a sexual body. And somebody blew my mind once when they said, everybody in the world has a sexual identity. Everybody in the world is sexual, even nuns and convents. And it blew my mind that all of us were made with a sexuality that was supposed to be activated and celebrated. And that's something we've definitely shut down. That came to mind as you were speaking around the sexuality. And then also on top of that, when you were talking about being tall and uh, out of proportion, one of the things that I have struggled with is slouching my whole life. And because I'm quite tall, there's two reasons to slouch. Number one is everything's made for not tall people. <laughs> so you have to slouch to do the dishes. But the other thing is a lot of tall people slouch because of the confidence of being tall. It's a bizarre thing to think that the reason we don't stand up straight is because of a psychological predisposition that we don't want to stand out. I have worked at that in the last five years to stand up tall. As I was walking back from the supermarket today, I was like, I'm just going to stand up straight. And I noticed that it was more natural to me now than it was five years ago to do that. And I think that's an important thing of we're talking about the act of recognizing and, and bring healing to our bodies, identifying it, but then also what can we do to practice alternative behavior patterns that give our bodies permission? That can be the celebration of sexuality. That can be the, you can hold a girl's hand, it's okay. <laughs> or just the celebration of standing up tall and being confident in who you are as a person, being silly in front of people, wearing glasses, doing the acts that we shut down but giving our bodies permission listening to them and going hey we're going to reverse the narrative here this is something we're going to walk forward in does that sound like a fair assessment to you yeah and um i also wanted to bring out the way that hillary talks about how we use bodies to discriminate so it and again in her book just giving credit where credit's due is that she talks about the body as the great unifier Everybody has to take a breath to live. Everybody has to eat to live. Everybody has to drink water to live. Everybody takes a poo every day. Everybody, you know what I mean? Like goes to the toilet, yeah. those kinds of things. So it's like, it is actually the great unifier. But what we've done as a society, 
because we're quite a disembodied society, to be honest, and we take the body and use it as a way to discriminate against each other. So an example of that would be ableism, where you say that, or you have in your mind that able-bodied people are actually more important and more inherently value than people who have disabilities. Yeah. So that shows like how many establishments, businesses can you think of that are accessible to people with disabilities such as hearing loss or they do they have wheelchair access at their premises what about somebody you can't see if you are able-bodied you don't often think about it because it's just not something that comes naturally to you but what we're starting to realize is that bodies have been a place of discrimination and you skin color that's an obvious one racism it's a way of saying that white bodies are more valuable than people of color which obviously disgusting but it's a way where bodies have been used to discriminate and there's many many other examples but i did want to bring that to light here as well is that we've just taken this thing that's supposed to be the great unifier that we're all experiencing the human life here together and we've used it as a weapon right so uh, essentially we're looking at the differences between our bodies and other people's bodies creating distinctions and lines and treating people differently according to those distinctions absolutely and there's the um like think about weight loss and the huge way that it's been used to market the perfect body to people even in western cultures and say at this particular time what we consider as the perfect body is somebody who's reasonably tall skinny you know a particular body weight things like that and it's used as this standard that you look up to and go i want that I want to be that body because that's the body that culture has told me is the most acceptable and is the body that I need to have in order to be happy, but also in order to be accepted and liked by people. And it's easier to go for that body than it is to address disembodiment. Right. Or even perhaps we didn't know that disembodiment was what was happening. Right. I bet corporations who are getting billions of dollars out of this don't want people to know that it's a thing that's happening. But it's just first, again, like we've said so many times, is first seeing what's going on and realizing it and then realizing how you're just craving after this thing because you want happiness and you want what society has told you is going to give you that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's great. I've got a quote here by this guy, Tennessee Coates. Disembodiment is a kind of terrorism and the threat of it alters the orbit of all our lives. And like terrorism, this distortion is intentional. I don't know necessarily what he was trying to capture in that, but from what I captured in that is a summary of what we've been saying is that when we are disembodied, it's an act of terrorism, not only to ourselves but to society as we begin to differentiate people and each other, our own flesh and blood, based on the differences that come up. And being okay with our bodies, being okay with who we are is a journey and We might not arrive there overnight, but what we might find as we do that is that some of those barriers that we have and the segregations we have will fall down as we begin to accept our own self. Yeah, yeah, they will. It is a process of becoming embodied for for me, but for everybody as well, is remembering that your body is a thing and it exists, but also like trying to view yourself as a whole person. Um, And Hillary gives an example in the book or an experiment where you hold your arm in front of you 
and just dangle it there. And you can either think of this as this robot that's just kind of doing what you ask it to do, or you can look at this hand dangling in front of your face and as you move your fingers and feel the sensations going back up into your brain, you can start to get this amazing overall feeling of your body is part of your brain is just one thing, right? It's not two things anymore. It's one organism and it's doing things to keep you safe and to, you know, it's, it's giving mm. you information. It's a good thing. It's not to be feared anymore. It's not to be suppressed. It's not to be like those kinds of things. And you slowly come to terms with what that means in your own life and how that's going to play itself out. Like I've started to notice ways where my body is tense that I haven't noticed in the past like sitting at the piano for me sometimes, or even at the computer, I notice that my shoulders are high and bunched up and tense. And like, I would get pain in the past in my shoulder and just be like, ah, oh, why is why is my shoulder painful? It's just annoying. We've talked about before how needs can just get in the way sometimes of creative flow. And they like, I've had the feeling of just, ah, oh, this is just in the way. It's just annoying. Oh, I need to go to the toilet. Ah, oh just quickly run to the toilet and get it over and done with, or I'm hungry. I quickly run and get something as fast as possible. And maybe that's why you sometimes eat crappy food because you just want to get that feeling out of the way as fast as possible. So you can get back to what really matters, which is doing whatever you are working on. But I think this whole thing with, okay, with anxiety and we're talking about tools and ways to reduce that. One of the things is realizing that every single thing you do at that particular moment, all that matters is the present moment. So you're eating something and rather than just rushing off to the next thing as soon as possible, because this bodily thing is getting in the way of doing what's really important, which is going and editing this podcast, is that it's all part of one life. And that's all that we have is the present moment, like experiencing it for what it is and not rushing off to the next thing. So you're sitting there eating your lunch and you could be just trying to get through it as fast as possible in order to get rid of this annoying hunger feeling in your stomach. Or you could be sitting there taking in the environment, uh, feeling the way that it feels when you eat your food and all of the millions of sensations that happen as you do that and then go back to what you were doing when you're ready, right? But it's all part of, I think, where we're heading as a society is first realizing that anxiety is a huge problem and quite possibly fueled by technology, the incessant scrolling that mm. we've uh, grown accustomed to and grown addicted to. And then we're trying to slowly uh, rebel against that or, or like just put things in place that take us away from that. And being present, being fully embodied and experiencing everything in life, not just thinking that it's the most annoying thing that takes you out of what's important. It's like, no, the whole thing's beautiful, right? The whole existence is, is one thing and it's very beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, and uh, with scrolling through technology endlessly, that reference there, I think it can be good when you're doing that to catch yourself. And instead of going, oh, I shouldn't be doing this, this is bad for me to going, why am I doing this? What does my body want to do right now? What am I doing in response to give it its knees? And for me, one example is rest. My body is looking to rest and this is something I learned through my burnout was I have to be okay with being unproductive. 
I have to be okay with not achieving. I have to be okay with seeing opportunities pass me by and this crazy drive of the creative to continually progress and create and envision and see and the magic of that. I need to learn how to to put that aside for the sake of my body to go, ah, you know, all my body wants to do today is read a book, do a jigsaw. My body needs a mental break. And this is one thing that, to be quite honest, I've driven my body mercilessly, especially we do in our younger years, like a like a car that's redlining, achieve, success, progress, make something great out of life. You only live once, live fast, die young. And then there's this point of life that you realize that all along your body was subject to you, doing what you wanted it to do, and you've trained it. You've trained it now, and then for me anyway, there needs to be a step back to go, flip, thank you. Thank you for carrying me through this far, and I'm sorry for not listening to you. I'm sorry for not giving you rest when you requested it. You know, talking to your body, you know, sorry for pushing you away when I was embarrassed of your needs. Sorry for, you know, whatever it might be, and coming back to being present as you talked about in the moment looking after you I mean I could stay up till three in the morning doing work my body will happily do that but it won't do it because it wants to do it it'll do it because I've trained it to do it so how do I now untrain my body to be present and be in the rest another way that my body has suffered especially through burnout has been the inability for memory capacity and it's got better I've always been sort of gung-ho and I've realized that as I didn't rest, the way it affects my body as a whole is I become more forgetful. I become more distracted, head in a million places. And this is a flow down effect of using my body, redlining the car, having to go back to go. If I can be present, then my mental health will see a huge recovery. Yeah, I totally hear you on the rest thing. Um, I was talking to my therapist and he was saying how I need to actually plan into my day times of doing absolutely nothing. What led to that in the conversation was I was just saying how I'm quite an achiever and want to achieve things and often feel like when I'm doing nothing that I'm not being productive enough and um, I should be doing things. And that is a contributing factor to my anxiety is this gradual build-up of this feeling and I can feel it start to like rise and then when it starts rising it's almost like a jug boiling it just comes to the surface really quickly and one of the things that he instantly picked up on is he said well you've got this feeling where you're not being productive enough right but part of being productive is realizing that we are humans who need rest and don't avoid that, like plan that into your day, be really intentional about setting aside 30 minutes or an hour of just doing absolutely nothing or just doing the things you really love doing or things that build you up and give you life. Put it literally on your to-do list, add it to your reminders, what you want to get done that day, put it on the list along with other important things. And he also talked about the difference between important and urgent and not important and not urgent and labeling every single task that comes across your desk or comes into 
your sphere, your world that you have to accomplish or get through. Um, he said, label all of them in a hierarchical form, like what is urgent and most important, and then A, B, C, D, C's and D's, just get rid of them, cut them off the list. With everything that comes into your life, is it important? Ask yourself that. Is this important to me? Is this something that needs to happen? And rest is something that is very important and needs to be structured into your day. So I'm not a type of person who struggles with getting too much rest and getting lazy and lying around all day and doing absolutely nothing. That's not my vice. My vice is doing too much and overloading myself, wanting to achieve. And this all comes back to the Enneagram, which again, we'll talk about in, a, in another episode, but the interconnectedness of all things. Dirk Gently, it comes in again. All of these tools are connected. Yeah, that, that overachieving feeling for me, um, that story that I have to achieve, otherwise I'm not good enough, that's all coming into play here. And he's saying even really high achievers, they put rest into their schedule. They literally put it in as something that they have to get done. And that's where you can feel good, like, or spending time with your family or, you know, just stuff like that actually scheduling it into your day. And here's the amazing irony is it can be technology. There's nothing wrong with technology. It's the abuse of using the Instagram feed as the escape mechanism that we have so come to associate. And I heard a rumor, I saw an article, a rumor that Facebook's looking to change its name. And the comments around that were... Whoa, that's big. That's big. I don't know the authenticity to that but it set me on the trajectory of thinking and the comments around this were it shows that facebook knows there's a bad stigma around its name it's being used as the you know this is bad this is going to destroy your life i don't hate technology i think it's great i think these things are great i think the millennial generation is the social generation we have pioneered social connection through digital technology that is just unprecedented in the world. And so I think that's a good thing. But I think the issue is we have used this as a form of a coping mechanism. And we don't know how that the immature person, the broken disembodied person doesn't know how to relate to these things that are around us in a healthy manner, especially when we spend years. And so maybe there is a sense of disengaging for those things or as we spoke about before the podcast, maybe in the midst of doing these things that we have as coping mechanisms, they are opportunities for us to tap into the what's going on here, what's happening inside of me, why is this the case, yeah. rather than cutting them out. Absolutely. And that's really summarizing well exactly what we're talking about is um, using anything. Technology is one of the ways. Um, there's plenty of others. The, the cliched ones, alcohol, smoking, drugs, blah, blah, blah. They're just methods of avoiding pain and coping with life. And we can latch onto them as things that get us through because often they do take away the pain for a minute. They do make it subside and go away. And so I can see why people would get addicted to that um, because pain is very hard to bear sometimes. It does make a lot of sense to me and to everybody, it'll be a different vice um, some people will really struggle with technology and it'll become a thing that they get addicted to quite easily and will have to really battle. Whereas for others, it might not even ever be a problem. So wrapping this whole conversation up and coming to conclusions, I mean, I think we already kind of have 
but I do have this quote to read again from The Wisdom of Your Body by Hilary McBride. This really blew my mind and it takes into consideration what you're talking about before of speaking to your body, realizing that we're all one thing and we're not just a brain and that's not all of who we are. Yeah, I'll just read the quote and yeah, it really helped me. So hopefully it's helpful for people listening as well. Regardless of where you are on the stress-trauma continuum, if you notice yourself getting stressed or activated, try this. Place your hand on your chest or somewhere else on your body, perhaps somewhere that helps you settle or where you sense distress rising. Then say, I know you're feeling scared right now. This makes sense in the big picture even if it's hard to make sense of right now. What is happening is just your survival response in action. You are working so hard to stay alive and safe, and I'm so proud of you for that. You're doing such a good job of getting me ready just in case something awful is going to happen. Thank you, you are so good. And then, if you really are safe, try adding this. But you are safe now, and as soon as you're ready, it's okay to let go and come back into rest. I will stay with you the entire time. We will do it together, one breath, one day at a time, as long as it takes. So yeah, it's a beautiful quote, beautiful thought it really starts to take hold of this thing of of noticing things in your body for me it's been noticing anxiety and where it sits in my body and having tools to be able to know how to deal with that and how to just like you regulate your emotions regulate what's going on inside of you in this way as well Thanks so much for listening, everyone. If you like the podcast, please consider leaving a review and following the show on Instagram. The support means a lot and is super helpful for the algorithms. All original music is by me, Stephen Garten. And thanks, as always, to my co-host, Matt Goodat, for the chats. All right, I'll see you all in the next one.